This week on The Other Side, it's time for America to leave Julian Assange alone and be a good ally to Australia. We'll explain what happened this week and why the right and left pretty much agree on this one. Radical jihadist Islam in our midst. New video sheds an even more troubling spotlight on those protests at the Sydney Opera House last October. Woolworth's CEO does the ultimate self-checkout from his job and a nasty ABC TV interview. But are Coles and Woolies really ripping us off? Or are we being deliberately sold a lie about the true causes of inflation by powerful left-wing interest groups? We'll explore that question later and you might be surprised by the answer. The lawfare campaign against US former President Donald Trump to stop him running again reaches ridiculous proportions. You will not believe how political their legal system has become over there. And big tough Vlad Putin takes out another political opponent. So strong and popular he must truly be if he needs to kill off anyone who challenges him. G'day Sydney, g'day Geelong and g'day Australia. This is episode 302 of The Other Side for the weekend commencing Friday night, February 23, 2024. I'm Damien Curry. Welcome back to the show that gets you informed for the weekend after a busy week with all the most important news and commentary of the week that truly matters without the woke ideology. This is the show that declares its bias right up front. We're free market, free trade, free people, classical liberals. We don't believe government should fix everything. We express strong opinions and we welcome your disagreement. You should not agree with everything we say. This show is all about making us think and challenging the dominant ideas behind so much of the other content that we consume. So let's get thinking. A lot of the time lately, I feel like I'm living in a clown show. Over the holidays, while I was in London, I was pretty stunned witnessing the pro-Palestinian rallies taking place weekly at Westminster. This is how the UK's Times newspaper saw it. Meanwhile, back home in Australia, the New South Wales police were proclaiming that the vile mob who gathered at the Opera House two nights after the October 7 attacks in Israel, celebrating the air, sea and land offensive by Hamas that directly attacked civilians and murdered around 1,200 Israelis in cold blood, that vile mob at the Opera House who brought international shame to Australia in front of our nation's most recognisable icon by chanting F the Jews, kill the Jews, and many still believe gas the Jews, that mob were triumphant and jubilant at the horror committed in Israel on October 7. Nobody with that kind of mentality or mindset belongs in this country, period let alone walking freely on our streets and gathering in crowds chanting vile slurs. One thing I'll say for London is that the police and media there don't kowtow like we do. While the weekly rallies at Westminster can be quite horrible in intention and sentiment among certain groups, anybody that's heard mouthing such vile words as we heard at the Sydney Opera House would be and is pretty swiftly arrested or moved on by police. Certain flags are not permitted and certain chants are not tolerated. But here in Australia, we had the New South Wales police try to tell us all that they weren't saying gas the Jews, but merely where's the Jews. If you're gullible enough to buy that rubbish, I've got a bridge I'd like to sell you. But let's say we were gullible enough. Is where's the Jews any better than saying gas the Jews? 
The Sydney mob were supposedly gathered in opposition to the lighting up of the Opera House in the colours of the Israeli flag, which was a show of support and sympathy. They lit flares, burned an Israeli flag and chanted their anti-Semitic slogans. What did the police do? Nothing. They let them carry on. And instead, they warned the Jewish community to stay home for their safety. Not unwise advice, but advice that should never be necessary in modern Australia. And remember that the only person who got arrested that night was a guy carrying a rolled up Israeli flag in support of Israel who refused to be moved on. Despite having several signed witness statements from people who say they clearly heard the phrase gas the Jews being chanted, New South Wales Deputy Police Commissioner Mal Lenyon says their audio expert says the phrase was actually where's the Jews. Right, okay. October 7 was the biggest attack on the Jewish people since the Holocaust and there's been a 700% increase in the number of anti-Semitic incidents reported in Australia. A recent editorial in the Australian newspaper asked this question. What would the reaction of Muslim Arabs in Australia be if following the Christchurch atrocities, hundreds of white Australian men waving Southern Cross flags gate-crashed a candlelight vigil for the victims while loudly chanting, where's the Muslims? What would you say to those who supported such a demonstration. The expression, where's the Jews, is as bad as gas the Jews, because it means, where are they, bring them out so we can kill them. That's the underlying intent of that chant. If you believe that is in fact what they were chanting, I don't. Well, now we're going to show you some footage that hasn't been broadcast on television before. Joining me now is Daniel Lukovic. Daniel is one of Australia's best regarded security firm heads. He has more than 20 years experience in security and risk management. And he's also a pretty well-known speaker and media commentator. He was also the candidate for the Sydney seat of Wentworth in the last federal election for the Liberal Democrats, now the Libertarian Party. Daniel, welcome. G'day, Damien. You're joining us today because you've obtained more footage than was seen before of the Opera House incident on October the 9th. Tell us a little bit about it and, and how you came across this footage. Well, most people will be familiar that within practically hours of the greatest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, when Hamas left Gaza and attacked Israelis, within hours a rally was planned in the city. And to be clear, Israel had not yet responded. So this was not a protest about what Israel was doing. This was a celebration of mass murder that happened right here in Sydney. And unfortunately, there were some people there who were very openly and very proudly engaging in absolutely appalling anti-Semitic conduct. But what happened after that was perhaps even more disturbing when there was what amounts to gaslighting efforts by police to convince people that really nothing bad happened that day, when in actual fact what happened that day should appall every fair-minded Australian. And I came into possession of some footage that you're going to see a little preview of, which shows the extent of what happened, the extent of the inaction by the police at not only dealing with it in real time, but how they dealt with it after the fact. And this tells me that we have a real problem in deciding the direction that this country wants to take and what we consider acceptable and what we consider completely unacceptable. Daniel, where and how did you get this footage? I know that you may not be able to tell us all the details, but um, can you give us an indication of where it came from, why you got it? Well, one of the interesting things is that when the police were trying to argue 
Did anybody say gas the Jews or did, or did they say where's the Jews or whatever other story you wish to believe? There were so many cameras there. It was like a rock concert. There were dozens and dozens of cameras. So if police wanted to get hold of footage, it was very easy to do so. And that was certainly my experience because there were crews there, there were individuals there, there were eyewitnesses there, and there is documentary evidence that shows not only one particular phrase that was controversial, but even if you set aside gas the Jews, there were open calls for anti-Semitic jihad on the streets of Sydney. There were flags, symbols and slogans of prohibited terrorist organisations in Sydney and there were police turning the other cheek and ignoring it, not only during the event, which I understand might have caused a safety issue, but ever since when rather than enforcing the law, determining that crimes had been committed, pursuing the individuals with all of the footage that a bloke like me somehow manages to get, they haven't sought that. They've instead decided to gaslight the community by saying, oh, nothing really happened. They said, where's the Jews? It's not a big deal. Well, I'll tell you something, it is a big deal. And this isn't a big deal for the Jewish community alone. This is a big deal for every Australian because in any conflict of violent Islam, it's the Jews first and it's everybody else next. All right, Daniel, you're gonna put this together into a documentary. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but I wanna show people what we've got. You've given us two minutes and 20 seconds roughly of this. We're gonna play it in full. Uh, it's edited and produced up. I do want to say at the outset that um, you know, a lot of people are not showing these sorts of images. They're not talking about this sort of stuff. The police are trying to keep things calm. I understand that. Uh, we do not want to discriminate against the um, peaceful, regular, everyday Islamic community at all. Nope. What we're watching here is a radical extremist subset of Islamist jihadist activity, which we do need to talk about, which we do need to police, which we do need as a country to worry about. Um, so, in that context, let's now just have a look at this two minutes of footage. And the reason I say this is because there is very little that I see in the conflict, in the war, in the aggression of the Zionist regime over our people. That moves me to tears. But this morning I cried. And the reason I cried was because I was so overjoyed to see the amount of support that we now have. I check something to the police. Some people, they try to make for us trouble for next week, doesn't make anything. It was only when all else had failed, when all channels of peaceful protest had been barred to us, that the decision was made to embark on violent forms of political struggle. Including the government of this colonial entity that we call Australia, are tripping over themselves to outlaw boycott, divestment, and sanctions on Israel. Resistance is always justified for as long as Palestine is occupied. It's like setting fire to gunpowder and then getting upset at the gunpowder for exploding. Palestinians have every right to break down our case. Taken 
stand before you and shed tears over the settlers, the terrified settlers. Colonialism is violent in its most natural state and will only be overcome with greater violence. Okay, so let's be clear, uh, it's not representative of the broader Islamic community in this country or any other, but it is something that needs to be looked at and addressed. This is, you know, obviously an extremist, jihadist, Islamist sort of small group. Um, but boy, Daniel, it looks more like Gaza than Sydney. Uh, I, I must have watched that clip dozens of times and it still chills me to my core. And you did notice in that clip at one stage there was a quite lovely Lebanese gentleman there and he was down there protesting and that's his right and that's a right that I absolutely support. And he was furious that there were people actually firing rockets, flares at police and the police did nothing about it. And he knew that that was going to cause trouble for his community later. And, you know, he and several others were actually saying to the police at the Sydney Opera House, what are you doing? They were reporting actual crimes in progress and the police were just maintaining a respectful distance, which essentially told people, literally calling for death to Jews, literally thanking Hamas, a prohibited terrorist organisation in this country, and yeah, the, and, and, a free pass. And, and this is a, um, I mean, let's bear in mind here, we're talking about October 9, right, in Australia. So a day or so after this hideous attack. We're not talking now after we've seen Israel's response and well, some people might be a little bit concerned about well, it these. Well, it goes even earlier because if you think about an event like that and prior to that there were speakers at the town hall, there were PA systems, the whole bit that you set up with the protest, that started being planned while there were still Hamas gunmen unaccounted for in Israel. So there so was who still- was that guy speaking at town hall that we saw? So they started the town hall, they moved down to the opera house, mm -hmm. but he was speaking there um, he sounded more like he was delivering left-wing, socialist, radical rhetoric, colonialism well, and all this stuff, rather than talking about anything related specifically to the Palestine problem. Yeah, I mean, the, what was interesting is that the a lot of the crowd there, you know, there was certainly your, your garden variety leftist protest, renter crowd, you know, socialist resistance, communist were there as well, but... What happened later on at the Opera House, th this was not the, the blue-haired, you know, Marxist red flag block. Th these were actual uh, Islamist chants in Arabic. This is not something that right. a kid at City University picks up. But it was interesting that they were using lots of buzzwords to try and appeal to that crowd. So talking about things like colonialism and oppression and resistance. And th these are all sort of buzzwords to an aspiring campus leftist. But let's be clear, if you use the word resistance but you're talking about rape, you're talking about mass murder, you're talking about burning entire families alive for no other reason than because they're Jewish. That's not resistance, that's genocidal, that's Nazism, that's anti-Semitism. And yeah. that's what actually happens. So these people run the risk of becoming essentially the useful idiots for Hamas, the same way once upon a time they were useful idiots for communism. Those things haven't changed, but this is now happening in broad daylight in but Sydney. You're a security professional. From your professional perspective, what do you think the police were trying to do there? Obviously keep it calm, 
not agitate, not aggravate, not it was a, it was a strategy of uh, not to you know cause an, exce- uh, an an amplification or acceleration of what was going on, right? Mm. Well, Containment. Look, I mean, with my cards on the table, I'm a free speech absolutist, and if people wanted to stand up a town hall and they wanted to say, you know, all sorts of things. As far as I'm concerned, I would actually fight for their right to do so. But there is a certain line when you actually start using Islamist war cries, you start waving the flags of prohibited terror organisations that have carried out mass murder. That's a red line. Now, I don't necessarily expect the, the standard police officer hanging around the city to be fluent in Arabic uh, or, uh, you know, Quranic warfare to necessarily know when a crime has been committed. But at the point where there's actual uh, flags being set on fire, there's incendiary missiles being fired at the police, and then the police do, some, do nothing, I beg your pardon, that tells me that they're either absolutely scared out of their minds, which means they were unprepared, they were under-resourced, and they were caught flat-footed, or it tells me that they had instructions not to make trouble. And given that subsequently there wasn't a proper investigation, there were no significant arrests that I'm aware of, and in fact, the only person that got arrested was yeah. arrested for carrying an Israeli flag, the of all things. The Israeli flag. Right? That tells me that the police have basically given the green light to people who in any other country, in Europe, for example, would be thrown straight in the back of the divvy van, yeah. but in this country were given the green light. And that can only lead to more of this, not less of it, which is what Australians deserve. Daniel, thanks very much for joining us. Really do appreciate it. You're, you've got a fundraiser up to turn this into a documentary, I understand. It's called... Yes, so we, it's Where's the Jews, and I'd love people to go to wheresthejews.com so that we can raise enough money to turn this into a full-length documentary because you ain't seen nothing. We're sitting on some incredible footage that's really going to open a few people's eyes. It's going to okay. make a few people nervous. Wheresthejews.com. Right, that's on the screen there, so wheresthejews.com if you'd like to support Daniel Lukovic in, uh, in getting this uh, documentary put together and this uh, very important footage out there. Daniel, thanks for joining us on the other side. Britain's High Court spent two days this week hearing the arguments from both sides over whether Australian WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange should be allowed to mount a new appeal against his extradition to the United States. The two judges decided not to make a decision right away, though. They instead reserved their decision, and it's unclear when they'll make their ruling. There used to be a saying many moons ago that justice delayed was justice denied. At the pace our courts move these days, justice seems to be permanently denied. More agony for Julian and his family awaiting the outcome. Julian's brother and wife have been all over the media telling of their fears for his health and safety. Assange has spent five years in a British jail fighting this extradition. He's not in jail on any offence. He's just being held there at the request of the United States, our ally while all of this moves through a snail, at a snail's pace through the uh, UK's clogged and sloth-like courts. Before that five years, he spent seven years virtually imprisoned in the Ecuadorian embassy in London until Ecuador kicked him out and reversed the original asylum they'd granted him. So he's been effectively locked up for 12 years since he was 40. He's now 52. He fled to the Ecuadorian embassy because Sweden was trying to have him extradited there on rape charges that they later dropped and which appeared to be suspiciously flimsy. So why are the Americans after him? Well, because WikiLeaks published hundreds of thousands of secret military and diplomatic files on the US-led wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The lawyers of the US government told the court this week that Assange had solicited the secret US files and in eventually publishing them, he indiscriminately uh, published them without redactions and that that 
made his actions unprecedented and did not, therefore, constitute journalism. Well, the problem with that argument is that a whole bunch of the world's most respected newspapers, including the New York Times and the London Times, also published everything that WikiLeaks did. So it kind of was journalism. Assange's lawyers argue that he was exposing state-level crimes, something that is protected conduct under UK law. They say the US charges are political and that he's being prosecuted for engaging in ordinary journalistic practice of obtaining and publishing classified information. They also argued that the prison sentence he faces in the US is excessive. This prosecution by the Americans is being brought by them under the 1917 Espionage Act. It's a law which has never before been used in relation to the publishing of classified information. So it sure seems political. The strongest argument the US side has is that the publishing of the classified materials could have put the lives of many people working undercover for the US in Iraq and Afghanistan in trouble. But if that's such a concern, why aren't they also charging the newspapers who published the leaks? And what about the failures of the officials who should have been preventing such leaks? The person who was jailed in America for being the military source of the WikiLeaks, Chelsea Manning, is free. She had her sentence commuted by President Obama in 2017. I think Julian's paid enough of a price already, frankly, and it's time for this to be dropped by the US. As Albo said, this can't go on forever. But why can't Albo and the great Australian ambassador to Washington, Kevin Rudd, get just a little favour from their mate Biden on this one? It makes the AUKUS alliance look a little lopsided and weak too, doesn't it? Assange has effectively been locked away for more than 12 years, and he suffered significant physical and mental health effects. This is just state cruelty and abuse. And it makes it very hard for the liberal democratic West to maintain any moral high ground over real politically persecuting states like, oh, I don't know, Russia. How can we complain about Navalny and other political prisoners in China, for example, when we do this sort of thing to our own? The calibre of CEOs in Australian corporates is becoming a bit of a concern. We all know that nobody is standing up to the infiltration of left-wing woke ideology inside our corporations. There are many people who believe it's impossible to hold conservative, libertarian or even good old-fashioned classical liberal views and get ahead today in leadership or management positions in Australian corporates. Or even get in the door in some cases and get a job in them, so woke have they become. The ideology of the left, neo-Marxism and identity politics, what we now colloquially just call wokeism, has truly infiltrated corporate bureaucracy as much as it's infiltrated government bureaucracy. It's come in the back door in the private sector through woke human resources philosophies that put diversity and inclusion based on the traits of gender, race and sexuality above all else, including capability, talent and merit. It's measured by investors now. The DEI index and your ESG scores have to be high or doing business will be hard. This is ideological infiltration of the worst kind and there is a backlash happening because of course it's all failing. When you block the best talent from coming in, your business suffers. The backlash is coming from right-minded voters and right-minded investors, customers and those who have the means and authority to speak out. But why do corporations like this woke stuff? 
Since when are the institutions of capitalism itself so fond of Marxist ideas and why? Well, it serves their interests. The more red tape and green tape and rainbow tape bureaucracy there is, the harder it is for small and medium-sized rebel businesses, their competitors, to start up and compete. The harder it is for the individual to leave the big corporation and start their own thing if there's mountains of government and legal bureaucracy and red tape to get through. So now big business and big government, the old right and left in a way, work together against the little guys, the freedom fighters, small business. Anyway, an appalling case of corporate arrogance was exposed this week by the Four Corners show on the ABC. Coles is the supermarket chain that heavily promotes LGBTQ plus ideology and hiring bias. And Woolworths is the delightful chain that decided not to stock Australia Day merchandise. Both companies seem to be firmly in the clutches of the Australian left when it comes to policies like this. And now the support of the anti-free market left is coming back to bite them on their backsides. The Woolworths Australia Day merchandise decision seems to reflect a serious disconnect from everyday Aussies, a senior leadership that's perhaps out of touch or arrogant. That's a perception supported by the attempt by the Woolies CEO or ex-CEO now, Brad Banducci, to walk out of his Four Corners interview this week. The line of questioning that so offended Mr Banducci was about Coles and Woolies' treatment of their suppliers. The old boss of Australia's consumer and competition watchdog, the ACCC, Rod Sims, told the show that suppliers were supposed to be protected by a government food and grocery code of conduct brought in in 2015. But Sims says that code of conduct is just a disgrace and it just isn't working. The establishment in 2015 of a food and grocery code of conduct was supposed to take some of this friction out of the supermarket supplier relationship. Under the code, each supermarket appoints and pays for an arbiter to handle its complaints. The grocery code of conduct is quite frankly a disgrace. You have a code with no penalties. Now let me just emphasise that. That is like having a speed limit throughout one of our cities of 60 kilometres an hour. That's the speed limit. Then someone says, what happens if I go 80? Nothing. That's no penalty. So the law's a joke. The code of conduct is a joke. So that was the ABC's Four Corners. One of the failings of capitalism and free markets is the tendency to monopoly. That eventually you lose the competition that makes the market work and keeps prices low. Uh, basically one or two players will get too big and they start controlling things and that is probably one of the only roles the government should play in regulating the market, preventing those kinds of monopolies. And that's what the ACCC was set up originally to do. I personally wish it would spend some time looking at the ABC, don't you? Talk about unfair competition. Check out the broadcast media industry, guys. We've got to compete with a monster that's funded a billion dollars a year of taxpayer money and it doesn't have to interrupt any of its shows with ads. Now that's hard. Anyway, I digress. Back to the supermarket duopoly. So if suppliers think that they're getting a raw deal from Woolies or Coles, they can lodge a complaint under this food and grocery code of conduct. But guess how many complaints have actually been lodged? Well, for Coles, only as few in as many years, and for Woolies, actually zero. Why? Well, maybe it's because they do a good job of sorting out deals with suppliers without any need for government interference. But Four Corners says, no, that's not it. The suppliers that it spoke to said, if you complain, you get retribution. The ABC show put this 
to the Woolworths CEO and, well, he didn't like it very much. Why do you think it is that Woolworths has never had a single complaint under the Grocery Code of Conduct? Uh, I mean, I, you, you know, you would have to go and ask suppliers why that's Well, let me case. tell you, let me tell you, your sure. own arbiter, Helen Chris, McKenzie, okay, Helen, yep. has said that suppliers are frightened to complain and that they fear retribution. Look, I think it's just the nature of any relationship that there's going to be that anxiety. It's a lot stronger word than anxiety. So we engage with our suppliers every week. We have robust conversations every week. We resolve issues every week. It's only if you can't do that that you go to a, to, to a, a code arbiter or anything else. Yeah, four corners there. Brad Banducci went on to say that there's plenty of competition in the supermarket business, pointing to Aldi's success and its 590 stores across the country. So Aldi, they're an amazing business. Uh, they drive incredible value. They have 10% uh, of the market, though. That's not the percentage they have. They're in every community, and it makes customers have a choice between a Woolworths or Coles and an Aldi at minimum. And by the way, just up the road is a Costco warehouse. Sorry, you're saying that actually there is really robust competition? I mean, Rod yeah. Sims, the former head of the ACCC, says that we have but one of the most concentrated supermarkets in the world. Is true. he lying? It's not true. And it is it is not true. This community over here, there will be three coal stores within two kilometres of it, at least one Aldi store, a series of independents, ability to, within 24 hours, have a quarter of our store delivered to you by Amazon. It is an incredibly competitive market. The risk people have is that... Sorry, the former head of the Competition Commission says... His words are that we have... By the way. I, I don't think you would impugn his integrity and his understanding of competition law. I'm just saying the world has got much more competitive. He retired 18 months ago. He's not... OK, let's... We'll, can we take that out? Is that OK? I should... I mean, he, he is retired, but I, I shouldn't have said that. Angus, are we going to leave it in there if we are? Well, I mean, if, if we're on the record. You said it. I mean, you know, let's let's move on. But yeah, yeah, no, um, I'm, I think I'm done, guys. Uh, you know, I, I, I do this with good intent. You know, I don't do this with bad intent. Right. You're walking out, really? No, no, no. Can we just talk to uh, no, Brad for a sec? Let me just, so. let me just we'll have a minute. Of course, we'll be finished. Let me for. Let's keep going. That was an atrocious performance by the Woolies now ex-CEO. In this day and age, any exec who's silly enough to do that on national TV is way behind in their communications ability. We might have excused this kind of behaviour in the 70s, but in 2024, give me a break. He also said in the middle of a TV interview, can we take that bit out? Seriously. He clearly hasn't listened to a single media advisor in his entire life because even the worst advisors, and there's plenty of them, would have told him never to do that. If he's so disconnected that he's not listening to the most rudimentary basic advice on PR, what else that's even more important was he not listening to? After his appalling decision to not stock Australia Day merchandise in January, this was his second serious fundamental screw-up in as many months. And as it 
turned out for him to be the end. On Wednesday, Banducci announced his earlier-than-expected retirement. He'd been planning his transition to happen soon anyway, so maybe he was just sick of it all, or maybe the board pushed him a bit after the Australia Day merchandise and ABC TV screw-ups in recent weeks. Who knows? His base salary was $7 million a year. His bonuses were equally humongous, so no need for any tears for Mr Banducci. Since he became CEO in 2016, though, Woolies' share price has just gone up and up and up in a straight line. There is no taking away the fact that he was successful at his job. Maybe he just doesn't want to stick around for the political fight that's coming over prices and treatment of suppliers. All right, now, I'm not in the habit of defending big supermarket chains, but... There does seem to be a campaign going on at the ABC and among the lovely people on the left, Labor, Greens and the unions and academia, to make out that the cost of living hell that we're all suffering right now is somehow all the work of these big bad corporations suddenly price gouging. No, inflation is the work of big bad governments printing too much money, spending too much on terrible policy like their mismanaging of COVID and racing way too fast towards ridiculous energy goals that we can't meet or afford. And it's the result of high input costs that businesses have to deal with, like rising wages and crazy rents caused by supply shortages. When you're paying $400 for a trolley of shopping, it's not because of Coles and Woolies conspiring to get you. If they're being tough on suppliers, it's to keep prices down. And their profit margins are not huge or above world averages for supermarkets anyway. Now you'd think the ABC's Four Corners would take the time to do this, since they have plenty of resources, but we took a look at the net profit margins of major supermarkets. Coles is 2.6%. It's not very high. Woolies is 2.4%. Nobody's gouging. It's a bloody tough business. How does that compare with other countries in the world? Well, it's pretty much on par. The UK's Tesco is at about 1.5%, Sainsbury's is 1%, France's Carrefour is 2.8%, and the US Costco is 2.5%. The US grocery store market is pretty competitive, and their profit margins also are in the 1% to 3% range. So no, they're not gouging. Is the Aussie supermarket industry a duopoly dominated by Coles and Woolies? Wouldn't have been too hard for the ABC Four Corners show to just show a chart of the, the market share breakdown, right? Well, I guess our supermarket industry could be a little bit more competitive, but it is not a duopoly. Woolies has 37% of the market, Coles 28, that's high, but it's not a duopoly. When you've got Aldi at 10%, Metcash, that's IGA, at 7%, and you've got 18% of the market held by others. It's pretty competitive, and the proof is in the low profit margins. So, could it be more competitive? Yes, but let's be clear. Despite all the noise you're hearing from the ABC and other interest groups on the left, supermarkets are not responsible for the cost of living crisis. Make no mistake, inflation is caused by governments printing money, bad policies, and high input costs like rent and wages. But we can't have that being the story, can we? So, what exactly is going on here? Are we being deliberately spun a lie? It should come as no surprise that a couple of weeks ago, a report came out into price gouging by corporations, authored by none other than the old, old head of the ACCC, Alan Fells. And who asked Professor Fells to do this report? Well, 
it was commissioned by none other than the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions. And it found, predictably, that banks, supermarkets, aviation and energy companies are exploiting their market power in ways that drive up inflation and hurt Australian households. The ABC dutifully reported that the study by Alan Fells found that rising prices were not just caused by true inflation, but often by greed, corporate gouging and profit pushing by companies with too much market power. Now look, I've got no doubt that some dodgy stuff goes on in corporations with pricing, and we do need to police it. But if you think it's the main cause of inflation, I'm sorry, you've got rocks in your head. The main cause of inflation is simply government overspending and governments printing money that it doesn't have to cover that overspending. Most people who have a vested interest in big government spending, which in Australia is everybody who works for the government or is on welfare or is dependent on government services, will try to tell you it's the evil corporations and their price gouging that causes inflation. But that, my friends, is a flat out lie. Okay, so it's absolutely clear now to everyone who's not completely blinded by hatred of Donald Trump, and it's even clear to lots of people who can't stand Donald Trump, that the United States legal system is being used against him in a campaign of political lawfare by the Democratic Party and their appointees in state judiciaries, in law enforcement, and in departments of justice to stop him becoming president again. This week, a New York court judge ordered the former president to pay more than 350 million US dollars and barred him from serving on a top role of any New York company for three years. What was the crime for this massive penalty, which could eat up all the cash that Trump has on hand to run his businesses and put thousands of jobs at risk? That he overstated the value of his properties in bank loan applications so that he'd maybe get a lower interest rate from the banks. All of this happened long before he became president, and it was a victimless crime. Did he do what was alleged? Well, probably not much beyond what was normal practice at the time, but enough to get a conviction if you're a Democrat Attorney General deliberately going after a political opponent. One of the lending banks who would have been the victim of this terrible crime, the massive German bank Deutsche Bank, assumed from its own analysis of Trump's properties that his net worth was billions lower than what his statement said. No representatives of the bank testified that they would have priced the loans any differently as a result. Bank employees, in fact, testified that they longed for Trump's business. So there's no victim here, just political lawfare. And that is the problem. Not only is the guilty verdict a bit of a sham, but the penalty is off the charts in terms of fitting the crime. The penalty has to be paid within 30 days. Trump has to find that cash equal to more than half a billion Australian dollars. He can appeal the decision, but he still has to front up the money first and then fight to get it back later. No right-minded person could possibly look at this and say, oh, oh, that's normal, that's fair, that has nothing to do with politics. It is an obscene and obvious abuse of power, far worse than anything Trump could ever have done. And it brings into dis disrepute the legal system itself in the United States and certainly in the state of New York. Those responsible for this should face charges of election interference and egregious abuse of power. The Attorney General of New York State is an elected position in America. It's a political position, and it's currently held by this woman, Letitia James, whose politics are as modern left-wing as you can get. Here's her campaign pitch on the left-wing Now This website 
from back in 2019. America is an uncharted territory. We are angrier and more deeply divided than we've ever been at any point in our history since the Civil War. And at the eye of the storm is Donald Trump, ripping families apart, threatening women's most basic rights, and running for attorney general because I will never be afraid to challenge this illegitimate president when our fundamental rights are at stake. From the Muslim ban, to efforts to deport immigrants, to denying transgender students the ability to choose whatever bathroom they want, rolling back regulations to protect our planet, colluding with foreign powers, putting profits over people, dividing us in ways we haven't seen in generations. I believe that this president is incompetent. I believe that this president is ill-equipped to serve in the highest office of this land. And I believe that he is an embarrassment to all that we stand for. He should be charged with obstructing justice. I believe that the president of these United States can be indicted for criminal offenses. And we would join with law enforcement and other attorneys general across this nation in removing this president from office. In addition to that, the office of attorney general will continue to follow the money because we believe that he's engaged in a pattern and practice of money laundering laundering the money from foreign governments here in New York State and particularly related to his real estate holdings. It's important that everyone understand that the days of Donald Trump are coming to an end. Wow. Okay. So you can see what's going on here. That's the Attorney General of New York in her campaign video before she was elected to be the Attorney General. So the, the former president will definitely, definitely get a fair go in New York State. Anyway, the business community in New York are not impressed. Multi-billion dollar US investor Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank has reacted furiously to the Trump verdict. He says he and many others won't be putting up with this sort of politicization of the courts in New York and will simply just pull their money out of the state. Do you think any foreign institution or any private equity firm or any pension fund would touch New York? No. And that's why New Yorkers should be concerned. The fine people of New York should ask themselves, why are we such a loser state? How are we going to attract business? It's not just the existing businesses that are fleeing out to Texas and Florida. What about new money like this that I'm talking about, like a $4 billion data center? Not a chance I would put that in New York. Zero probability. Never. And so they've got a lot of work to do to find themselves getting out of this situation. This has all occurred post-pandemic. Winner states versus loser states. Look at Tennessee right now, fastest growing city in America, Nashville. Winner state, good policy, competitive taxes. You've got to start thinking about this in the context of winners and losers. New York, mega loser state. That's investor Kevin O'Leary pulling no punches there on Fox News Business about the message New York has sent to the world with his Trump, this Trump verdict of theirs. The New York Attorney General, Letitia James, was busy virtue signaling like crazy at the news conference after the verdict. Today, justice has been served. Today, we prove that no one is above the law. No matter how rich, powerful, or politically connected you are, everyone must play by the same rules. Oh, that's beautiful. So honorable. So noble. Yeah, it all sounds lovely and nice, but as Trump's lawyer, Alina Harbour, told Fox News, it's just a little bit hypocritical. 
nobody is above the law. I would just like these left-winging DAs and AGs to show us that. Show us that. I'm inviting you to show me that no one is above the law while we have Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, and all of his friends up in D.C. in the deep state that have not been touched. Everyone is above the law if they're friends with Miss James, if they're friends with D.A. Bragg, and if they're friends with Fannie Willis and Jack Smith. The only person that is not, the only person who did nothing wrong but will still get persecuted and prosecuted is President Trump because they can't beat him in November. That's Trump's attorney, Alina Harbour. She says, despite the obscene level of fine and the demand to pay it in just 30 days, it will not lead to the destruction of the Trump empire, as the New York attorney general obviously hopes. It's not going to work, number one. Number two, what they're doing is a scare tactic. Unfortunately, they picked the wrong guy to pick on, in my opinion, because he's strong, he's resilient, and he happens to have a lot of cash. Now, that doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean it's okay. It's grotesquely insane. Uh, I was speaking to somebody today that actually mentioned that there are countries that literally make that in a given year in certain industries, countries in this world, but they would find somebody for what they call understating their statement of financial condition and making Deutsche Bank and Zurich, who, by the way, they still work with, money. But they're going to find him that kind of thing. It's absolutely insane. No, there will be no mayhem for the Trump organization, unfortunately. I know that probably was Miss James's goal and, and judging Gorin, but that is not going to be the case. Ouch. Donald Trump's attorney, Alina Harbour, speaking to Fox News in the US a couple of days ago. We'll keep you updated on all the lawfare attacks on Donald Trump in the coming months as things progress. One thing is for sure, all this is doing is making him more popular and stronger in the polls. So utterly stupid are the left in America. It's a pity the Democrats can't focus on winning in the actual election by putting up a candidate who's not suffering dementia, maybe? If America moves any further in this direction of abandoning its core ethics, morality, conventions and system of justice, it won't be far off the delightful Russians in real USSR KGB fashion. The former opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who committed the heinous crime of being, well, an opposition leader to God Almighty himself, Big Vlad Putin, was found dead in his prison in the freezing Arctic north of the country. Navalny was an anti-corruption campaigner who rose to become the most prominent critic of Putin. In August 2020, a plane travelling from Siberia to Moscow was diverted to Omsk when a passenger on board became seriously ill. That passenger was Alexei Navalny. He was evacuated to Germany, where the authorities confirmed he'd been poisoned with the Soviet-era nerve agent Novichok. He went into a deep coma, but he recovered. But the, then he insisted on leaving Germany and returning to Russia. How brave and courageous is that? Well, he was promptly jailed for 19 years for extremism. By extremism, Putin means saying bad things about Putin. In an Academy Award-winning documentary about him titled Navalny, he was asked what his message would be to people if he was killed. Here's his response. Не надо, нельзя сдаваться. Если это произошло, это означает, что мы необыкновенно сильны в этот момент, раз они решили меня убить. Но и нужно использовать эту силу. Не сдаваться. Помнить о том, что мы огромная сила, которая находится под гнетом вот этих вот чуваков плохих, 
Лишь потому что ну, мы не можем осознать, насколько действительно мы сильны. Все, что нужно для торжества зла, это бездействие добрых людей. Поэтому бездействовать не надо. Apologies to our audio podcast listeners there, but I guess uh, you, you get the gist of what he was saying there. That is a hero. That is a giant of a man. That is courage. That clip is from the 2023 Academy Award winner for Best Documentary, the film Navalny. Well worth watching. To all these Putin lovers out there right now, especially on our side of politics, you seem to be willing to forgive a lot of horror and injustice. The enemy of your enemy isn't always your friend, guys. Let it go. Putin is a scumbag. And if he is so popular with the people, as defenders of this dictator seem to want to tell us all the time, then why does he fear a democratic election so much that he has to lock up anyone who upsets his little ego ever so slightly? Dozens of Russians left flower tributes at a Moscow monument on Monday to honour Navalny, despite hundreds of arrests in the days since the opposition icon's death was announced, reports The Australian. How brave is that? Nearly 400 people have been detained and at least 150 sentenced to short prison terms in the three days after the death was made public, according to human rights groups. Look, you can support Putin's position on the Ukraine war as much as you want, if that's your thing. But please don't make this guy a hero of the fight against the establishment, as many so-called people on the right have been doing on social media lately. He isn't. He is the leftist establishment. He's everything that we are fighting against. As conservatives and libertarians living in Western democracies, we need to defend our culture and systems even as we critique them. The false equivalents people are drawing by saying, Putin is no worse than Biden, Sunak, Trudeau, Elbow, etc. That's not good. He is a lot worse. Communist dictatorships are much worse than liberal democracies, even when those liberal democracies are in deep trouble. We must defend Western liberal democracy even more at this time because it is under attack. And Putin will be grinning from ear to ear about how popular he's suddenly become among some elements of the right in the West. Don't fall for it. That's all we have time for this week on The Other Side Australia. Please like and share and tell your friends about the show. We really appreciate your support. And that is the best way that you can support us and help us keep the media landscape in Australia more diverse politically and have more diversity of opinion. The only diversity that should really matter. And do join us on ADH TV at adh.tv for all our great content. Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, Spectator TV, Fred Paul, Nick Cater and David Flint. You can download our app to your phone. Just search up ADH TV on Google Play or the Apple App Store. We're going to have some new news soon about a new great website or you can watch our live stream on YouTube at any time. There's heaps of ways to find us and we'll catch you next weekend for The Other Side. We drop a new show every Friday night at 8pm. I'm Damien Curry. Bye for now.